Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to a Believe podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm, and this is the Guitar Life. My special guest today, very talented bass player, music producer, arranger, composer, Alan Deramo. Wow. Seems like there's nothing this guy hasn't done. I'm going to read off a list of credits. I haven't done before on my show, but uh, it's all worth mentioning. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks. some touring national artists that Alan Deramo has worked with. Belinda Carlisle, John Lloyd Young, Colin Hay, Vince Gill and Amy Grant, John Oates, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, John Denver, The Captain and Tennille, Mamas and the Papas, Lisa Vale, Shivery, Ambrosia Parsley, Maria Frangolis, Jesse Colin Young, Jules Shear. In the LA area, gigs and recording with people, Barry Goldberg, Jerry Goffin, Katie Moffitt, Rosie Flores, Dave Alvin, Exine Cervenka, John Doe, Tony Gillison, Drake McFinney, Jack Tempchen, Bobby Cochran, Bill Madden, Julie Christensen, Susie Hansen, Sean Franks, Rob Laufer, Bill Lynch, Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, Herb Peterson, Jim Horn, Michael Blake, Vigo Mortensen, that's interesting, Clito Escobedo, that's a Jimmy Kimmel show, band leader, Cecilia Noel, <coughs> excuse me, and the Wild Clams, Swati, Tim Moyer, 
I'm not making all this up. These are people that Alan Deramo has worked with. It's fantastic. How about in the jazz world? What else? What has he done there? Eric Marenthal, Pat Kelly, Greg Caracas, Brandon Fields, Kevin Latow, Spies, Barbara Morrison, Terry Lynn Carrington, John Novello, Bluesium, Paul Carmen, Gordon Goodwin, Ann Walsh, Vince Denham, Greg Vale, Tony Guerrero, Matthew Von Doren. I mean, I've heard of most of these people. Southern California area where I live, Laguna Beach. The OC artists around here, myself included, John Hoisenstam, he's worked with Mike Hamilton, Richard Steckel, Steve Wood, Beth Fleche Wood, Craig Bueller, Karen Benson, Rodden, Gnarly Bros, Eric Henderson, Jason Freddy, Shakespeare's Fool, James Clay Garrison, Leslie Page, Nick One, The 133 Band, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Phil Goff, and Honk. Those are all pretty, pretty... I mean, outside of Laguna Beach, those are great musicians, <clears throat> even. <laughs> Lots of big projects, too. Uh, the Glen Branca Symphony, Tony Hawk, his Boom Boom Huck Jam Arena Tour, the Cyrus XM Radio, he was a consultant, KXFM, he was the host of The Lost and Found, recorded and produced CDs for the Laguna Beach High School Band. Michael Bolton, he did arrangements and transcriptions for the Roland Corporation, he did onboard demos, the Kauai America Corp, Kauai Pianos, he did NAM demos and consulting. He, he's done theater work. Rita Rudner, Tooza Crowd, Moon Over Madness, Cinderella, with the Wadsworth Theater, Elvera's show at Knott's Berry Farm, the Rocky Horror Show. I mean, should I stop here? I mean, this is crazy. The Sierra Club, Fox Sports, Fuel TV, Shred, Ride Channel, 900 Films, Tour Design, as a composer, Kraft Foods, Video Now, Hexbug, you know what? And a list of IMAX theater movies. I mean, this I got to stop here. This is crazy. We're going to talk about all this stuff, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. This is the Believe Podcast Network. I'm John Hoisenstam. This is The Guitar Life. Let's hear from uh, Alan Dermo. Hi, Alan. Welcome to... Uh, the Guitar Life. Hi, John. I'm so glad you could do this. I'm grateful that you're spending the time with us. And uh, I didn't know, this is a total fact, I didn't know how big your resume and your bio was. I mean, I'd met you in Laguna through friends. I think uh, Richard Steckel, um, he, uh, you know, suggested I call you because I needed a bass player. And I never uh, knew about your background until uh, till just recently. And it's incredible. I mean, you got a resume that's a mile long. I had no idea. All these people that you've played with. What do you well, I've been doing it a long time. And I think it just tends to happen if you stick with something. Um, 
before you know it, you know, you've done a few things and it just adds up over the years. Yeah. Well, it really added up. Well, I, I want to get into that a little bit later. But first, uh, uh, where are you originally from? I was born in L.A., lived in East L.A. the first uh, eight years or so of my life. And then uh, my family migrated down to South Orange County first. OK, San so, Clemente. OK. And you're still there. And, well, not really. Um, we're in North San Diego County now, but basically I've just gone back and forth between L.A. and Orange County my entire life. Um, 20 years as an adult in L.A. and then back down to. Mm -hmm. And more recently, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we moved on down to Encinitas. Oh, OK, that's right. Now, you told me that before. Yeah. Uh, do your uh, do your parents uh, still live uh, nearby? Because I know you're you got they would have grandkids now, right? <laughs> well, my dad is uh, still around and he lives up in Lancaster. Uh, oh, okay. My mom passed away about 10 years ago. Oh, sorry. Anyway, but uh, you got a family and you're in uh, you're in uh, Encinitas. Um, who are your main influences as you were growing up? You know, who inspired you to uh, really become an ace bass player that you are? Well, uh, originally it was uh, the Beatles, the Beatles and the Beatles. <laughs> because I was at the age to be really totally caught up in Beatlemania uh, when they first appeared in the Ed Sullivan show and all of the subsequent sure. uh, barrage of Beatlemania. So okay. um, McCartney any, uh... would have been... Excuse me. McCartney would have been my first kind of major bass influence when I started paying attention to what was going on 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 Beatle Records. Right. And um, I actually started playing clarinet. That was my first instrument. Um, my dad is a woodwind player. That was really his main career as a saxophone, clarinet, flute player, and arranger. So obviously, I was really taken with what he was doing and wanted to follow in his footsteps. So clarinet was an instrument that was offered in the school music program in fourth grade in LA. So um, I dove into that. And then around the same time I got a guitar and um, had a few lessons and, and was kind of um, forced into the whole typical beginning guitar curriculum at the time, which was stuff like red river Valley and sure. you know, whatever else you, you had to play. Um, so I kind of had a parallel track going even at that point with the woodwind instruments and string instruments. Um, but my dad noticed after a year or so that I was really gravitating toward bass lines and playing bass lines on the guitar. Mm -hmm. So being a musician, he was perceptive enough to, to see that and say, I should get you a bass. And, um, even though he was a woodwind player, he was kind of drawn to the bass too and kind of fantasized about taking up the bass as a second instrument, which he really never did. But I think he saw that as sort of um, something he could transmit to me or mm -hmm. allow me to, to try out. So eventually probably at age nine or 10, I got a bass and kind of dove into that playing in kid garage bands. Um, but I was still playing clarinet and eventually saxophone and flute and school bands had that going on. So um, 
it was kind of a parallel track that eventually diverged and the woodwind instruments sort of fell away and bass and guitar to a lesser extent became kind of my means of expression. So in answer to my question, your dad was a major facilitator, let's say, and supported you in your music studies. He did to a point, and then when he saw kind of that I was maybe taking it a bit more seriously, he was uh, cautioning me, as a lot of <laughs> um, parents who are musicians might do, just saying, it's a tough way to make a living. You, you probably need something else to fall back on, you know, the typical mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I think once he saw that I actually was making a living at it, he, he was... Supportive. <clears throat> supported in the sense yeah. that I, I know he told people that we knew in common that he was proud of what I did. And That's whatnot. great stuff. My aunt was uh, similar to that. She gave me a bass when I was nine years old and a guitar. So, But I was playing trumpet in elementary school, you know, getting my feet wet, you know, learning how to read music yeah. and all that sort of thing. But very similar sort of thing. Well, that's that's interesting. Did, did you have any other hobbies besides yeah. music? Uh you know, that you were doing when you were a kid and maybe even now? Well, you know, um, I was in surfing when we moved to San Clemente, just getting caught up in what my friends were doing. And so that was kind of, an, of an obsession for my preteen years and, and maybe through high school. I always liked the mountains, so I was into hiking, backpacking. Um, those were kind of... <clears throat> my main interests probably other than music. Okay. But at a certain point it just became all music. And, you know, even though I think I maintained some kind of balance, it's, it's really not healthy just to immerse yourself into something and not have any other creative outlets or physical outlets. So I think I was at least not as uh, completely one dimensional about music as some people I know, which can be unhealthy, perhaps. Can be unhealthy, yeah, sure. Um, so you, you're you deciding that you're going to be a professional uh, musician and uh, you're starting to mix with uh, other musicians. When did you first uh, go out on the road and experience your first sort of like road trip uh, touring with a band? Because I know you've done a lot of touring, and we're going to talk about that, but where were the first uh, first uh, preliminary experiences that you may have kept you going or made you double-think what you were doing? Huh? What happened? <laughs> you know. Well, after my second year of college, I was offered a gig in a touring cover band, and believe it or not, that was a thing that actually used to exist in the mid-70s. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> It's something that obviously doesn't exist anymore, but um, it was something you could do then and make decent money. And um, it was actually my friend Paul Krybeck, who's a drummer and I know was a him. high school classmate of mine. Sure. Very good jazz drummer. And great drummer, great guy. And he um, pulled me into this touring Top 40 band and we went to really uh, high-class towns like Fresno, Klamath <laughs> Falls, Oregon, uh, Wichita, Kansas, and uh, would kind of park ourselves there for maybe a month at a time. Right. Um, I think, I think the Fresno gig was actually yeah, it was a whole month, but um, 
I drove home a couple times during that stretch because we were only playing maybe five nights a week. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess that was my first taste of, of real road life. And it was kind of an education because I was the youngest kid mm -hmm. in the band. And um, there were some kind of more adult activities going on amongst the other band members that I hadn't been exposed to before. So Yeah, right. That well, that's was, what I'm getting uh, at. How do you tolerate that when it's so new and uh you know kind well, of like um, eye opening? <laughs> yeah, good question. I really never had um temptation to go down that road too much. Um because I think I just uh I had enough of a solid background from my family and other places that mm -hmm. um I was content just being focused on the music and and whatever else I could get into that was not um, self-destructive. Yeah, uh, good point. So, well, that's that's actually what everybody's uh, struggling with uh, self-destruction. Yeah, um, yeah, that particular band, the the keyboard player, who was a super talented guy, ended up dying of a heroin overdose in his mid twenties. That so, teach um, him. <laughs> that kind of stuff was going on and I, w I feel fortunate to have stayed out of it, to have no interest in it. And, um, you know, it, we see it all around us, not just in music, but yeah. all kinds of I had a similar, fields. similar experience, a girl singer, she was 18. She overdosed and, uh, the shock of that happening, just, that just paralyzed my, uh, my hand, you know, I, I would never reach out, I'd always keep my hands behind my back and put my hands and go, no, thank you. None of that, please, because I know what that can lead to. And uh, yeah, good for you. Right from an early age, I started was re repulsed or repelled or whatever the word you want to use. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so, well, you know, um, sorry. That situation went on for maybe half a year. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of stepped out of it just because I wanted to try to get some work going at home and uh, not have to travel to that extent. Um, so um, I got into some local bands. By that time, I was living in South Orange County. And um, my first actual really inspiring kind of steady gig was with a singer named Ruthie Lewis, who was a um, really excellent jazz and R&B singer. The band members were all a little bit older than me and had been with her for a while. And I had some kind of uh, catching up to do just mm -hmm. skill wise to be on their level. So I'd say during that year, which was when I was 19 and 20, I, I really um, probably improved more than any other particular time frame because I was also using my free time to do a lot of practicing, probably up to, up to 12 hours a day at, at one point. Mm -hmm. transcribing um, bass parts off records, transcribing Michael Brecker solos and things like that. You're you know, doing to your homework, you're woodshedding. Yeah. And yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I really feel like that was an important time to dive into that extent, um, really explore the instrument. And it was just right when uh, Jaco Pastorius was coming out and, and you know, that Influence was hard to escape. Yeah, it so, opened the base uh, up to new uh, highways, new sure, possibilities. And the, 
the same period of time, um, people like Larry Graham, um, Anthony Jackson, Verdine White, um, yeah. lots of other. Love those guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, while we're on the uh, jazz subject, let me just read some names here of people that you've played with, because a lot of them I've heard of. They're very famous. So uh, you definitely developed into quite a jazz musician as well. You got you played with Eric Marenthal, <laughs> Pat Kelly, who's a fantastic guitar player, I think. I mean, I don't know if many people know how great he really is. But he's amazing. Truly. Yeah, yeah. very great. Paul yeah. Carmen, a great sax player. Vince Denham, Greg Vale, Tony Guerrero. I mean, I know those guys uh, from reputation and I've heard them. They're all, you know, top uh, jazz musicians. So that must have been quite, uh, quite inspiring to uh, play that great music, especially with them, because they're inspired musicians themselves, wouldn't you say? I would. Um, uh, but I have to say that I really don't, differentiate too much in terms of genres because mm -hmm. um, I've always liked a lot of different kinds of music and never really differentiated too much by putting myself in in one particular box and saying I'm a jazz player or a rock player or R&B player mm -hmm. and I tried to just absorb as much as I could from all of those genres um, try to play it as authentically as possible, really study what was going on and on the records and, and watch people play and try to just um, gain as much as I could mm -hmm. in a one-on-one -on -one sense. side of Alan Deramo. This is a soundtrack that he did for the Sierra Club, The Coast of Coal. You're listening to the Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm. This is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. So um, I love playing jazz, but I don't really consider myself a jazz player primarily because that is, is kind of a full-time uh, dedication. Yeah. And I could have easily gone that way and, uh, focused on the acoustic bass more than I have, um, make that my thing, but mm -hmm. I'm just drawn to too many other kinds of music and, um, love playing rock, R and B country, bluegrass, Latin, Brazilian, just so many things that I've, I've been fortunate to, to play with people that really, do it well mm -hmm. and see them um, try to hang in there with them. Well, 
you know, you talk about music production, you talk about staying at home. So you must have been developing your recording skills as well, because I see you have a tremendous uh, soundtrack uh, catalog here of things that you've done, especially all these IMAX uh, films and, uh, you know, you know, and uh, I see that you did something for, uh, you know, National Geographic TV and the, uh, you know, wildlife uh, societies and things like Grand Canyon Adventure. I mean, I've seen some of these movies um, and the soundtracks have played an important, uh, you know, important uh, part in uh, the way these movies come off. So, uh let me, let me ask you something about how you find this kind of work. Is it always just reputation, word of mouth, or do you go out chasing it down? You know, uh, It's a little bit of, of all of that. Uh, the IMAX films, um, those ones I mentioned, were all uh, scored by Steve Wood, who we both know very well. And um, he was uh, nice enough to pull me in on those, so I probably worked on maybe eight or more of the IMAX films um, mm -hmm. that were done by McGillivray Freeman and scored by Steve. And um, that was a great thing to be part of. Um, and that was obviously a case of, of uh, personal connection, already having played with Steve in, in bands, including the local talent band and his own uh, solo projects a little later. But, um, the chasing downwork aspect is something that just has to be done if you want to keep things going career-wise. And um, now, obviously, it's a much different ballgame with social media being kind of the primary driver of that. Mm -hmm. um, back then, it was more just trying to meet people as much as possible, um, um, keep in touch with people, um, sort of let them know in as subtle a way as possible that you're a, a sane, uh, easy to deal with person. Reliable. <laughs> a lot of times that's, that's more important than, than a skill set on your instrument, particularly if you're traveling with somebody that the amount of time you spend not playing music is, you know, many times greater than, than when you're on stage mm. actually doing it. So that part of it is important. You know, nobody wants to be on the road with someone that's hard to get along with or um, not a pleasant person. <laughs> so that's part of it. And um, otherwise, it's just, uh, you know, over the years, you kind of develop a network of, of people and you try to culture that branch out. And just because I've kind of played with so many different people i have tentacles out all over the place mm -hmm. and you try to obviously keep that going keep and, the wires um, burning yeah yeah um and you know living in la for the years that i did i really did so many different kinds of things up there and um a lot of stuff um in those years the the 90s in particular was due to playing with Cecilia Noel and the Wild Clams, which was a band that included her husband at the time, Tris Imboden, who you know. Mm -hmm. And that band just included so many great players uh, from all over the world um, during the years that I played with Cecilia. And um, Cecilia and Tris were very generous to 
throw my name out there for different situations, right. uh, for auditions, sessions, other things. So I really owe them both a lot. Um, they're both still great friends. And, and um, I have been recently playing with Tris in Honk again since 2015 um, until things shut down, obviously. But mm -hmm. um, Tris is one of my favorite drummers, obviously. Yeah, he's fantastic. I I think I had one jam with him in Newport Beach back in the seventies. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that was, that's uh, that guy's amazing. Yeah, what drum rolls? Let me tell you something. The guy can the guy can play drum rolls. <laughs> that is for sure. Hey, uh, so so here as a producer recently, you've been doing this thing with uh, Sean Della Croce, Croce. Is yeah, yeah. Now is she uh, is she related to Jim Croce? No. Okay. No, um, her dad. Yeah, <laughs> her dad is uh, Jim Delacroce, who um, is actually a, a uh, guy who's worked in different um, aspects of the music business in Nashville, including publishing and and um, promotion. Her mom, Erin, is a publicist who handles Vince Gill and some other mm -hmm. folks back in Nashville. Uh, Aaron's stepfather, who passed away a few years ago, you might know uh, Pete Huttlinger, was a really great uh, fingerstyle guitarist um, who uh, unfortunately passed away at 55 from a congenital heart disease. But Pete and I both played with John Denver, so that was kind of the initial connection um, leading to me working with Sean. Mm -hmm. Um I had known Sean since she was maybe 13 or 14 through Pete and, and her mom, Erin, who was Pete's eventual um, wife. Uh, but um, Sean is now 26 and really has developed into a tremendous singer-songwriter. And um, so about three years ago, Erin uh, and Sean approached me to produce her. And at first I was a little surprised because it's not like there's any shortages, shortage of producers or engineers in Nashville, but um, they wanted to kind of take her out of the typical boxes that she might be put in stylistically if she were to work with somebody in Nashville. Um, you know, the generic alt folk sure, box or, or um, singer songwriter box and so um that's a nice compliment to you basically <laughs> well yeah um aaron had heard some other stuff i'd produced earlier including an album um i produced for jason fetty that pete played on so she was kind of aware of what i was doing in the in, or capable uh, of for sure producing an engineering side and and gradually kind of ramping up my my abilities in that area um so this record that I did with Sean recently, we finished a couple years ago, but she just now um, uh, signed a deal with uh, Concord subsidiary label called Pasadena Records, and they are uh, releasing the record officially next month. So um, that's Sean Della Croce, C R O C E, if you want to find it, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, you say that Greg, do you pronounce his name Lise or Lise? Lise, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a very uh, 
famous side guy for sure. I mean, I, I've seen him in all kinds of prod. How did you rope him into playing on there? Well, Greg and I go way back. Um, originally, uh, some Laguna bands and L.A. bands from the early 80s. Uh, we went to um, New York and spent a few months there in the mid-80s um, playing with Richard Steckel and Matt McGarrah okay. in um, a, a band that um, was basically Richard's band. Uh, but um, Richard, through his manager, producer Randy Azrati, um kind of finagled away for all, all of us to go back there, have places to live and, and um, gig and record in uh, New York City and surrounding areas. So Greg and I were kind of in the trenches uh, doing that and um, played in lots of bands um, after that, including Jack Temption's band of the late 80s um, with Richard. And uh, I worked on some albums that Greg produced um, in the late 80s, 90s for Dave Alvin and other folks. Yeah, yeah, Blasters. So, yeah, so we have a, a you know, pretty long history you guys and, are like brothers uh i don't know if i'd go that far but um uh i was fortunate that greg was willing to play on sean's record and he's played on some other stuff i produced too but um he is kind of a hard hard guy to grab hold of these days just because um he's pretty much the pedal steel player outside of nashville and uh even in Nashville to some extent. So um, he's a magic man. You know, every everything he plays on, he he brings up quality, uh, you know, 100 levels. And um, so he's on pretty good amount of tracks on Sean's album. So you, you mentioned Jason Freddie. I know he he's uh, uh, around Laguna uh, a lot. Um, and uh, you've done recordings with him. Um, Nina Larson, uh, Kevin Nichols, these these people, uh, <laughs> they all needed you to help pr produce their music, huh? Uh, well, um, I don't know how much they needed me, but they got me whether they needed me or not. Um, well, how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in, in those cases, uh, Nina and Kevin were both um, either high school students or just out of high school when I worked with them. So it was a long time ago really a case of, of me discovering them through my kids who are now about to turn 25. But um, Nina and Kevin are both very talented songwriters and we're kind of starting out at the time. Um, but um, I think they just both kind of wanted an adult to help them sort of sort of a guarantee put some, Put something together a in, in, in a slightly more professional way than they could have done on their own. Um, Nina is now living in Copenhagen and is kind of um, carving out a little bit of a burgeoning career over there um, and continuing to really progress. Kevin, I'm not sure what he's doing, but uh, he's a super talented kid and I'm and, um, sure he'll get his stuff out there. Um, on some level, <laughs> hopefully soon. So, so uh, 
these international uh, people that you've toured with, you know, like you said, John Denver, right? Um, how does something like that come about? I mean, how did you get get uh, into that band? Uh, that actually happened again, um, kind of peripherally through uh, Cecilia Noel and the Wild Clams, strangely enough, because a guy that was playing percussion with Cecilia, um, Machito Sanchez, was working with John mm-hmm. and um, knew they were changing bass players. Uh, Jerry Chef had been playing and he was leaving. So um, Machito threw my name in there for John and um, it was kind of an unusual way to get hired. They, they actually hired me to do a one-off symphony gig in Atlanta, um, sent me tapes of maybe 30 or 40 songs to learn for um, one gig? Yeah. <laughs> and um, just knowing that I didn't want to half-ass it, I, it was a gig that I obviously, you know, wanted. Yeah, sure. Uh, I did my homework, learned the songs, and um, we had a rehearsal in a hotel banquet room the night before we gig, uh, before the gig at the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta. And um, we played through maybe four or five songs. And John said, oh, you know this stuff. You're fine. You know, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, lo- a leap of faith to um, to be that confident in me. But um, the gig went great. And uh, after the gig, John came into the dressing room and said, boys, I think we found our new bass player. <laughs> so Good, um, Good story. Uh, <laughs> That just uh, is a lesson to anybody that's that's sort of um, thinking about trying to pursue a gig like that or any road gig. Do your homework. Learn the songs old, front to back, with no charts. Come in like you've been playing it for years, and and just. you know, have confidence in it. And sometimes you can do that and it still just doesn't click for one reason or another. But um, it was odd because I hadn't really been a fan of John's for quite some time. I think I had kind of a brief infatuation with Rocky Mountain High when I was maybe in 10th grade. But um, he just turned into such a, a great mature singer in his later years, um, he was probably 49 when I started playing with him, 48 or 49. But he lost a lot of that kind of boyishness in, in his voice and really um, had a beautiful, full, mature voice. Um, we got to play all, the, all over the world in some pretty big venues and um, outside the U.S. particularly. The band was great. We got treated great. Um, flew on his Learjet in the U.S. a lot. So, um, you know, that kind of experience is hard to top, basically, um, when you're touring on that level. I mean, I wasn't there in in the days when he was selling out stadiums in the U.S. and, um, you know, they had an entire 727 that they were traveling and this was a little scaled down from there, but he really did maintain his following and... um, 
was a great musician, great singer, super generous to the band and crew. Um, it was it was a great gig to have. Good story. I like hearing these. All these other people, I was going to put above that, but you're starting at the top. <laughs> like Captain Tennille. I know the captain's brother, Dennis Dragon. Oh, sure. You were in the surf punks. Yeah, yeah the surf punks. Uh, so we had a connection with those. And Dennis, yeah. Dennis uh, the drummer of the surf punks, was a you know drummer, producer, engineer, mm -hmm. and did the sure. uh, Captain and Tennille mixing and stuff. So Yeah, um, that was um, another kind of mid-90s experience. And they were um, kind of winding down a bit at that point. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a bit of... Uh, Vegas, Tahoe, um, Reno, and um, just uh, industrials or or private parties, but um, that was a cool experience. Um, and again, I, I kind of got inside the music and really appreciated what what Daryl was doing as an arranger and songwriter. And um, you know, I, I paid attention to that. And um, another invaluable experience. Mm -hmm. uh, Dennis used to say that when Tennille came in to sing uh, a tune in the studio, it was one take and that was it. She was so good at recording. She could just come in and sing it once or twice and that was it. That was the take. She was just a yeah. very professional uh, studio singer. Totally. Yeah. And su super nice person. And um, that helps. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, great to do that for a little while. Mamas and the Papas? Uh... Yeah, that that was an odd one. I was in the actual very last touring edition of the Mamas and Papas that didn't include any original members. That's impossible. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I know. And well, that's why it ended shortly after I did it, uh, because the promoters would come up to them and, and say, what the hell? You know, <laughs> we thought we were at least getting Scott McKenzie. But um, uh that was uh, kind of a brief situation, but it was cool to play that music. And, um, yeah, I love I that music. Tried to um, really study Joe Osborne's bass parts on the records and sort of see where he was coming from and how that was integral to the music. And, um, you know, it was a cool thing to do. Sure. I love all those. One of my favorite all-time songs is San Francisco. Um Yeah. Uh, so uh, Vince Gill and Amy Grant, that must have been really, really fun. I mean, those yeah, well, people that was are kind so of, good. They are amazing. And um, that was sort of a brief situation. We just did a series of gigs uh, in 2000 and 2002 that were John Denver tribute concerts in which they were the featured artists. Oh, okay. But it, it involved, you know, a couple of weeks or more of, of being together. And Vince is just... Um, there's no words to describe how effortless and, and beautiful he, he is as a guitar player. And um, um, it was just uh, really a treat to be on the same stage with him and, and hear what he was doing and, and uh, hang out with him a bit too. He's in the Eagles yeah. now. <laughs> he is. Yes. Uh, that, he that's filled a some gig. big boots, right? Yeah. My God. And uh, Amy was a sweetheart and, um, uh, I got on her good side by uh, getting her a Tony Tony Hawk autographed skateboard. Right. Um, my wife, as you might know, is Tony's sister. So um, 
somehow um, the word got to me that that she would love to have a Tony Hawk autograph board. So um, I made that happen, and and we were. Um, well, know, well, you had something called the uh, Anarchy Orchestra. Yeah, you were doing uh, yeah. arena tours. You know, they do those huge skateboard arena type of dem demonstrations and rockouts, whatever you want to call that. But yeah, you were well, the this music, was, uh, music director. Yeah, this was really a unique kind of one-off situation that, looking back on it, and I think everybody that was involved feels this way. Uh, we wonder if it if it was a dream or if it actually happened because. <laughs> Um, it just seems so improbable now looking back on it. Um, this was a, uh, the, generally it was like a 25 to 30 city tour every year that, uh, went into arenas, you know, the size of the, um, the uh, forum. Yeah. The for or larger, like the pond and, um, Honda center. I'm sorry, as it's called now, Staples um, you know. Yeah, yeah, it, we did Staples Center also, but um, buildings of that size, and it involved a um, kind of a conventional large vert ramp in the middle of the floor, uh, a mega ramp at one end of the floor, a motocross track that went around the entire floor, including a jump that went over the skate ramp. Um, the year that we had a live band, which was the Anarchy Orchestra, uh, the band was situated on the floor kind of directly below the, the vert ramp on one side. And there were bikes and skateboards kind of flying into the band area ever so often. And um, nobody got injured on the band side. There were a couple of serious injuries among the uh, skaters and motocross mm -hmm. guys. Wow. But um, uh, that was something, looking back on it, um, I just I'm not sure if it actually happened or if I dreamed it. And um, partly I got in there through the connection with my brother-in-law, but it was actually Jim Garano, who was one of the co-producers of the tour and uh, kind of a veteran music manager who approached me about putting a band together and kind of coming up with a choreographed set of music to go along with the show. So it was some original music and some covers. Um, that basically was the soundtrack to the entire show that um happened the second year of of the tour the first year they had actual bands that were on one end of the, of the floor um including uh devo offspring social distortion good charlotte um the bands the of the I'm day for, for forgetting right now yeah <laughs> But um, they kind of abandoned that concept after the first year because it was a bit confusing for the audience as to whether it was a concert or an athletic event or or some kind of combination. It was it was a hard thing to um, for audiences to wrap their heads around. So that led to the idea of of having a, a sort of self-contained band uh, put together just strictly for that tour um, to to provide a live soundtrack. And then after that year, it sort of dawned on the producers of the tour that that was a bit of an expensive undertaking because not only did they have the entire gigantic uh, apparatus of the skate and BMX and motocross ramps, they, they were basically carrying a six piece band on tour as well. So it was, um, 17 trucks, six tour buses, uh, 
you know, which is on the scale of, of Pink Floyd or some of the largest um, music tours that have ever gone on. So that kind of thing just is financially a bit unsustainable. So after that second year, uh, the music was just pre-recorded. Right. And, and there was a, a live DJ that would um, spin and also trigger the music that I put together, uh, the pre-recorded music. That went on for kind of another three or four years in that format. But um, that experience kind of led to a few other things for me, including um, doing some uh, commercials and soundtrack work for ESPN, uh, Fuel TV, um, sure. the Shredder, Shredder Die Network. Um, so it was it was a good thing to be part of. And, and um, one of the most flattering things was um, I'm sure you're familiar with Sirius XM sure, satellite radio. Uh, Scott Greenstein, who is, was, is the main guy at Sirius XM, um, heard the, or went to the tour on the year that we had the live band and um, went to Jim Garano and said, who's the guy that put the music together for this tour? And, and it, um, so that led to Scott approaching me to be a consultant for um, a channel that Sirius XM was putting together at the time called Faction, which was supposedly geared toward a um, young kind of skate surf um, sure. demographic. So uh, for a couple of years, I got to be a consultant for Sirius XM and, and um, got kind of a window into their operation, which was uh, pretty impressive and still is. I mean, I'm I'm bringing these things up because I'm trying to uh, give people an idea about the diversity of uh, activities that can happen in a music career. I mean, we're going from one extreme to another with a guy who's playing the bass behind a country singer to a guy who's producing <laughs> yeah. skateboard rock events. I mean, this is really uh, fascinating stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, well, um, a lot of that really came out of the desire just to be um, – have a few other tools in my toolbox other than just playing the bass. Yeah, of course. And um, I really would recommend that to anyone who's looking to have a career in music, you know, have as many tools as at your disposal as possible. Um, be diverse, uh, be open to all different kinds of things. Um, stay on top of the technology and um, be prepared to, to wear any kind of hat that, that someone asked you to wear. And you, you mean you mean like the Glen Bronca Symphony 13 for 100 guitars at Disney Hall? <laughs> yes, that's a really good example. And uh, that's can, something I could probably talk about for forever, forever, right? Can you talk about it for just a couple of minutes? Because I, I'm reading what it is and I'm going, okay, what the heck is that? You know. Of course, yeah. Well, to kind of encapsulate it, uh, Glenn was a... Um, composer who who really um used mass guitars as his canvas or his uh his sonic um uh a uh, hundred guitars <laughs> um his, his um instrumentation so he started in the downtown new york scene in the early 80s um with bands that included members of sonic youth and and uh swans and other kind of um, noise rock bands uh, or um, I guess that'd be one way to describe them. Anyway, 
um, Glenn gradually sort of increased his number of guitars that he'd write pieces for. And he was approached um, in 1999 to write a piece for a thousand guitars to be performed in Paris uh, at some outdoor event. Um, I forget what it was, but he scaled that down to a hundred guitars when he realized that a thousand was kind of an unwieldy number to, uh, to compose for. <laughs> so um, this piece was per first performed maybe in, uh, well, actually it was right before 9-11 at the World Trade Center in uh, September, 2001. And um, he had the parts orchestrated in sections. So the guitars were alto, tenor and baritone, one through four, all playing different parts. And the guitars were tuned in um, pairs of thirds. So in other words, the sopranos would be a pair of E strings, a pair of B strings, and a pair of lower right. E strings. The baritone guitars would be B, E, B. And so the guitar players really had to think more about what they were playing because they weren't playing in standard tuning. Uh, the bass players, uh, of which there were 20 um, were in standard tuning. So there wasn't quite as much thinking involved <laughs> to play the bass parts, but uh, um, the bass parts were divided in, in sections of one to four. You're listening to a Believe podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstam, and this is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe I'd like to play a track that Alan produced in Nashville with a great guitarist, Greg Lease. Uh, they were working with a, a new up-and-coming singer, uh, Sean Della Croce. This tune is called Illuminations. Croce, 
Illuminations, produced by Alan Deramo. I wish them much success with that. Fantastic music. This was post Blasters, you know, he probably 88, mm -hmm. 89. And uh, no, it was later mm -hmm. than that, I'm sorry, because it happened the same time as the uh, LA earthquake. So it was 94. <laughs> I was a bit off on that. He, pro he probably yeah. caused um, it. <laughs> so uh, I just, um, you know, again, uh, it's. It's very cool to be able to say that I worked with Dave and played on that album. And um, what about uh, Vigo yeah, Mortensen? Okay. I mean, what what would you do? What would you yeah, do well, with a guy um, like that? I mean, he's more of an actor, was, right? This uh, was time period right before uh, Vigo really took off as an actor. I mean, he had some roles by that point, which was ninety four, ninety five. And he was married to Axine Cervenka, the singer of the band X. And I had been working a bit with her and um, a guy named Duke McVinnie, who was in, in Axine's band and kind of part of that whole X sphere. Uh, and so Duke was producing an album for Vigo. Um, he kind of dabbled in, in being a singer for a little while mm -hmm. uh we did some gigs including a place called um oh god i don't remember the name of it but um yeah don't worry about that Hollywood. are you guys still friends no or no, you guys no i still haven't really seen vigo for years but oh, okay. um i mean he's a he's yeah, a superstar uh, he now. was uh sincere about music and and was um kind of bringing something interesting to it at the time. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to that album again because it's been a while since I've heard it. Um, yeah. Sure. This, uh, I mean, this list of people that you've worked with, we could probably do like a, a Ken <laughs> oh, Burns, uh, you know, nine hours, three hours, uh, part one, two, and three. You got so many credits here. Uh, here's a guy, uh, Jack Tempchin. Right. Now, he wrote Peace sure Easy Feeling, right? Uh, that song, along yeah. with a guy named Rob yeah. Strandland, they co-wrote it. Uh-huh. Somebody was uh, was uh, heckling him the night that I was uh, uh, mm -hmm. watching him play. And uh, Jack said, yeah, it sure is a bummer when you can go out to your mailbox and get a royalty check for thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> that's what he. That's what he said to the guy. Yeah. You know who was heckling that's a, him. That's a comeback. That will so work. it's like you know. <laughs> but I mean, he's yeah, he's written some all-time classic of songs for the. Uh, yeah, for the Jack Eagles, is sure. is a very pure um, songwriter. It just kind of flows out of him like water, and um, um, sort of having seen his process. Um, I actually tried to co-write with him a couple times and uh, was around when he was right in the middle of writing songs on his own. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that would, have been, that would have been an interesting well, influence yeah, um, on you. Seeing yeah. somebody who's just so, such a natural at it, and um, it's almost just like conversation for him, you know, and um, it's, it's, it's that pure sure and... and um, uh real we really, really know the work for it and um sure yeah so um primarily with jack 
I was in uh, his band in the late 80s called The Seclusions that included lots of people that we know in common, like uh, Steckel, Greg Lees, Frank mm-hmm. Cotinola, uh Dave Witham. And so we spent several years doing gigs and recording with Jack, and a lot of it was on his dime because he was gener- generous enough to make up the difference when we did gigs at places like Madame Wong's or Club Lingerie that you know, paid him $15 maybe total. <laughs> um, uh, but apart from that, um, it was a lot of fun and um, the band was unbeatable, of course. And I've been in touch with Jack again recently because he actually lives pretty close to me in Encinitas and um, he's still writing great songs and he's also become a really proficient slide guitar player, which was something I wouldn't have expected, but he um, jumped on that and uh, really has a great sound and touch on the slide guitar. Started writing uh, Americana type blues yeah, folk that, type that stuff with his slide? Is that what's... Um, a lot of songs in drop D. <laughs> huh. I'd, I'd like yeah. I'd like to hear that. Is that a, is that a project you think is going to transpire? Well, um, if we get back to normal in terms mm-hmm. of uh, being able to be together and do things we we were doing before the pandemic, uh, yes, hopefully. In right, fact, right. Um, not long oh. before we were locked down, uh, Jack and Tris and Bowden and I got together and did a little playing at Jack's house uh, with the. Um, intention of of maybe doing some local gigs down this way so hopefully that'll happen before you know while we're still able to walk or <laughs> play music <laughs> if people if people want to look you up if people want to uh, uh see what's available uh you know uh, musically out there uh wh- well, where should um, they go i mean i'm talking with alan Deramo here. yeah right so, now uh, right now they really so have no place out. to go because i'm I'm the lamest uh, self-promoter in history. I, I don't have my own website. I hope to rectify that soon. Um, and when I... D- but you have stuff on the iTunes that's available? Anything? That not under my own name, but not? I'd say probably a, just a representation of something I've done lately because I'm doing a lot of different things on it is uh, the Sean Delacroce mm-hmm. album, Illuminations, which will be available in November okay. and it'll be on... Um, all the streaming platforms and iTunes as well. Or I guess there is no more iTunes. It'll okay. be Apple Music. <laughs> okay. Can you think of anything besides the millions of things we haven't talked about? <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I'm going to read these things off uh, probably oh, okay. when I'm not talking to you. <laughs> that'll be a lot. You know? so, so they'll be on your pro. Yeah, that'll be, be a lot less program, embarrassing to you know? me. So people... Um, no, but you're doing a wonderful job sharing all this with us. It's it's a total fascination. Uh, if it is for me, it's got to be for people who aren't you know professional musicians to hear how you, you know, go from one uh, complete, you know, one completely different thing to another in the music business is just, uh, it is crazy. crazy. <laughs> you know? I I I did a I did a. a, a you know, a career, uh, uh, you know, speaking thing at one of the schools, uh, talking mm-hmm. about vocation, and uh, of course, everybody when they hear think of me as a musician, they say, "Well, rock star," and I said, "Well, that is like one percent of all the things that you could do as a professional <laughs> yeah. musician is being a world popular." There's like so much more to it than just being yeah. a rock star, you know. 
So, so that's what you know. That's that's what you're doing here. You're showing people just how diverse. Yeah. Well, I guess become. there are a couple other things I could touch on. Um, one is I wanted to just talk about the Laguna Beach music scene a little bit because um, I owe okay. a lot of my longest and greatest um, musical relationships to being part of that scene, going back to when I was 18, 19. And people like Mike mm -hmm. Hamilton, Richard Steckel, um, Phil Goff, Eric Phil Henderson, Goff. you know, some incredible talents in that area. And, and I'm, I know Eric, I'm leaving Eric lots Henderson. of people out. And I apologize. Well, I'm going to I'm going to tell people what you know, I'm going to share this entire mm -hmm. list of people. I'm going to read it, read right through it. Just so okay. to blow everybody um, away. But, you know, yeah. I, I, I learned so much from you. Um, people in in that orbit and um was fortunate to look over steve wood's shoulder for example you know when he's had such mm. a long um yeah history of, in recording and and uh learned a ton from him um and i also um i have to say i enjoy playing with you whenever we can and uh it's always fun oh, and, and it's a bit of a lesson a guitar lesson for me i, I am paying attention <laughs> uh, to Cut what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. Oh well, I I uh, I think I've got lost more in trying to be like, you know, an authentic guitarist who studied his craft, and I didn't pursue commerciality, so to speak. I'd rather know more about how these guys became great rather than, you know, uh, being you know, successful perhaps at some other type of music that uh, doesn't really mean anything to me. So uh, like that thing I did with uh, Cashed Out, I played Johnny yeah. Cash music for a year. And I, and it was interesting that uh, Lee Rocker, who lives here in Lagoon, I don't know if you ever got the chance no. to play music with him, but I've gigged with him a couple of times and he asked me, uh, you ever heard of Luther Perkins? And I went, uh-uh, who's that? <laughs> it's like Johnny Cash's guitar yeah, player, uh, um, you know? So for a year, I just studied yeah. how to play like that. It's, it's kind you know? of a um, a narrow but but really incredible um, facet of, of guitar playing, and um, and yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, what else was I going to say? So you, you have your you have your Laguna people that you wanted to pay tribute to. Enough of that. And, yeah. uh, anything else you could think of? <laughs> I'm yeah. kidding. Well, I'm going to mention those people because I have the same kind of respect I think, yeah, for them I, as you it's do. It's kind of uh, a unique um, little um, uh, isolation chamber over the years, and uh, particularly back when there were so many more places to play, and you could go out pretty much every night and hear great music and and um, learn a lot. Yeah, I have. I've learned a lot around Steve, partic sure. particularly. I really want to thank you for doing this. If you feel like uh, you've spewed your guts out, uh, we can end it here. Yeah, um, I just hour, want to so, say uh, one more thing um, but, to anybody sure. that's hearing this before November 3rd. Make sure you get out and vote if you haven't already. And we have some important changes to make in uh, all levels of government. Um, Check out your local races, including the judicial seats, uh, city council, everything else, and do your homework and get out and vote. Well put. 
Thank you so much for being on uh, the show today. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what it all sounds like once I get <laughs> all to right. editing well, this. Thing. Thanks so much for having me, John. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great talking to you. Same I appreciate here. it very much. All right. All the best. This has been the Guitar Life. It's a Believe podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our show, please subscribe. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube